Welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason, and unfortunately, Allie and I are traveling this week, so we will not have a typical full-length show. However, we still have an excellent interview that builds off of episode three, which if you have not yet listened to, I highly recommend you go and download it before listening here. For episode four, or really episode 3B, we have a very special guest and a long interview with our program director, Dr. Mark Naylor, which we could not fit in our last episode on residency application and interviews. We discussed a wide range of topics, including some do's and don'ts for interviewing for residency and how programs consider applicants when it comes to the rank list. Dr. Naylor obtained his medical doctorate from University of Oregon, where he subsequently completed his surgical residency. He specializes in vascular surgery, but also, in addition to being program director, is very accomplished in surgical research. We greatly appreciated him taking the time to meet with us and provide a behind-the-scenes look at building residency classes each year. And remember, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at rmspodcast.outlook.com. We hope you'll enjoy this interview. Here it is now. All right, welcome back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We have a very special guest with us now. This is Dr. Naylor. He is our program director here at the University of Colorado Denver General Surgery Residency Program. So, Dr. Naylor, start. Just how did you get into surgery to begin with? Well, I initially into medical school thinking I was going to do OB. My philosophy was it was the one time people came to an inpatient environment for a happy purpose, as opposed to something you would probably like to avoid. And so that was my thought process. And I liked that idea of being a part of starting new life. And so that was my plan. And then I did the rotation. And what I hear a lot from students and you know, other people is that for some reason it wasn't a fit, may have been the environment, may have been just the residents I was working with. It's hard to know, but it didn't feel comfortable. And so then I switched to the, I don't know what I'm going to do plan. And I did medicine, liked it. They were lukewarm about me. I think the comment at the end of my rotation was something along the lines of, you're probably getting a program. I mean, not this one, but somewhere. And so um, then I did surgery and I really liked it. Um, I felt comfortable in the environment. I liked uh, the amount of medicine that was done. I liked the work ethic. I liked the directness of it all. I come from a family of teachers and construction people, which is sort of an odd combination. But um, that is what academic surgery is, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, And so for me... You know, it, it made sense to go do things and you got to use, you know, some of the spatial recognition, anatomy, you know, identifying parts, using tools, planning, you know, revising plans, that sort of thing. I was very familiar with that growing up and working on job sites. And, uh, and then uh, the teaching part, of course, I really liked. So I switched gears and... Uh, Went into surgery. Now, when in your career did you have an inkling that you wanted teaching or the whole idea of being a program director and helping guide people before you in your career as a surgeon? So it's interesting. I, you know, it's not clear to me that I'm that abnormal, having talked to a lot of fairly well known people around the country, that a lot of times their careers are not as planned as you might think. But I, did two years of research and then two years of fellowship 
and uh, and did my medical school training and all of my postgraduate training at the same institution at Oregon at OHSU. So I joked that at the time I was like a senior fellow, that I was possibly the oldest living trainee, and as such, younger faculty or younger house staff, I guess, would come and ask me advice about various things because I'd been there a long time and uh, sort of just developed the reputation of somebody that you could ask questions to. I was also a little bit mm, willing to push the envelope a little bit. I remember once, for example, we had to give a grand rounds as a chief resident at a private hospital. And you had to do that task once a month for the three months you're there. And so one, one of my grand rounds was tearing apart the concept of informed consent that basically you have operations that are so complicated that your medical student on the team doesn't really understand all of the implications or even that much about it. And that you're somehow going to get a patient with minimal education, comparatively speaking, up to speed on it. And I just thought of myself taking my car in and expecting a mechanic to suddenly explain the catalytic converter to me in like some five minute conversation. That's not going to happen. So uh, that was a controversial grand rounds, needless to say, culminated by a paper in the British Journal of Medicine where they actually videotaped the informed consent of parents whose children were going to be cared for at a tertiary cancer hospital, explaining all of the things that possibly could happen to them. And then when these things happened, the parents, not surprisingly, claimed they weren't told, they didn't you know, have any forewarning. This is all news to them. And then when they showed them the videotape where they were being explained exactly what had happened to their child, they still denied it. So our psychology is far more resistant than that piece of paper. And so, you know, I think I had a reputation of somebody who was willing to, you know, buck the system a little bit. And uh, that was another reason I think that uh, some of the junior house staff would talk to me about occasional situations they got into. But I didn't really come here with any concept of being a program director. I, I had a great program director. Karen Devaney's one of the longstanding program directors, and I respected her a lot, but never talked with her at all about an educational career. But after I'd been here a couple of years, the residents approached me and said, you know, you should think about this as a career. You'd be great at it. And our current program director at the time was going to retire. And so I went into the chair's office, made an appointment, and said, I would like to be considered to be program director when Dr. Hartford was to retire. And Dr. Harkin, who was the chair at the time, said, sounds great. We'll have you as a program director as soon as Ed retires. <laughs> and that was it. That was like, you know, there was no search committee or I didn't have to give a talk or anything like that. It was just, you know, one day I was going to be, you know, assistant professor in vascular and the next day I was going to be program director. And so it sort of coincided that I became program director right around the time that I got promoted to associate professor. So, you know, I still remember it. We had a site visit and I was the associate program director with him. And as soon as the site visit was over, then he retired and the, it was my program. But there was about mm, nine months between that time and the new duty hour requirements. Wow. And the preparation 
for the new duty hour requirements, as far as I could tell, was make me program director and retire. So, so suddenly we had a lot of work to do because we were one of the last programs to go from every other night call to every third night call back in the day when that was a transition. But that's how I did it. So it, it wasn't more planned than that, but it's turned out to be a, a great career for me. How many years have you been program director this year? I believe this is my 16th year in running the program, something like that. So a long time. I'm one of the more senior people now. Um, Some of the program directors that I grew up with are no longer program directors here. have subsequently stepped down. So I have a lot of experience, but I still love it. And the job has evolved and my career has evolved a tremendous amount, which we may or may not get to. And so, you know, that's, that makes it interesting as well. So this being the uh, interview and resident application episode and it being Mm -hmm. uh, application season, uh, we have to ask or hoping to get some insight from you. What are some aspects of an applicant that a program or at least uh, our program would look at or look for? So some of it's logistical. So we are a very highly thought of training program in the country. You know, people talk about numbers and whether you're top of this or that, and you know, who knows, but we're certainly a program that has a very good reputation. I think we put out a very good product. So our chiefs are sought after for jobs, for fellowships, things like that. And so we get a lot of applications. And in that model, you have to have some level of a scoring system to allow you to parcel these things out into different groups. It's not going to be logistically possible to read 1,200, 1,300, whatever they end up being, applications, and go through all all of the ERAS files in extreme detail. That's just not really realistic. It's no different for us than other programs. So almost every program that's big and has a huge volume of applications they have to sort out has some sort of a scoring system. And they're all slightly different and they're all roughly the same, mostly because there's only so much data that is in ERAS. And so in general, there's some level of step score scoring you get depending on where you score. And, you know, mainly because it's one of the few things that everyone in the country or in the world takes. Now, is it right? Is it wrong? It's hard to know. And there was some movement to make that exam pass-fail a few years ago because it would make it quite a bit less expensive if you didn't score it. But, you know, that didn't go anywhere. So the step one is probably the most important. Everybody has to have step two at least passed or they can't begin their internship. So it's critical in that regard. The problem with AOA, and yes, there's some points for that, is that not every medical school has it, so it's not completely fair. Then there's clerkship grades. Most of the basic science grades in many places are pass-fail now. So, you know, it it ends up in a system where if you pass grade, if you had a problem with something, then that ends up being a negative thing, you know, but there's not much positiveness for passing because everybody passes. And then there's some points given for publications. You know, for us, that's a big deal because now we have all of our spots designated for two years of academic time you know, with the thought being that you're going to pursue research in some field. And and so having people who've already done some publications and dabbled in that, I think, is a, a big plus. And then clinical grades, 
letters of recommendation and those become difficult to sort out sometimes. I've never a hundred percent been able to know, you know, we'll be in a rank meeting and somebody will say, well, this is a very good fill in the blank letter. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not sure you could throw like three of those letters in front of me as a program director and I could reliably like an EKG with ST elevation or something <laughs> say, oh yeah, you know. And what about personal statements? Because we're going to talk about that or have talked about that this episode. Yeah, so the personal statement generally isn't part of the screening program. It's a very interesting psych experiment, which is to have a blank piece of paper, minimal instruction, and see what comes out. I read them after we've gone through the scoring system and made some preliminary determinations about who's going to come and interview. And I think um, I would group them into interesting, where... A lot of times, you know, somebody will write about a personal experience. And so rather than give like categories, I'll just give some examples. Uh, I still remember a student who had uh, lymphoma. And he wrote very eloquently about sitting in the waiting room, waiting for the oncologist to come and, you know, talk to him to get it, be brought in the room to have the conversation. And he knew full well, depending on what the cell type was, it's either going to be cure or you're dead. Mm-hmm. Just a matter of time. And, you know, it's not quite that cut and dried. But, I mean, as a medical student, he had enough information to know that this there was a lot riding on this. Whereas your average person probably doesn't know that. And so he was just sweating bullets. And then how he had to lie perfectly still while they tattooed him for his radiation ports and how hard that was. You know, and just some little things that, you know, it reminded me a little bit of like a, we had a wedding photographer who was incredibly good at capturing these black and white images of things that were like amazingly personal, almost like Life magazine. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my dad lost his left arm to a shotgun blast age 12. And he can do pretty much almost anything. Well, he's dead now, but he could do almost anything people with two arms could do, except for a few things. And one of them was tie his shoes. Hmm. And somewhere during that wedding, because you know how it is when you have a big wedding, you don't even remember what happened until you look at the video. Uh, I had tied his shoes, and that photographer had caught my hands tying his shoes and put that in our wedding album. So I think good personal statements are a little bit like that. They're able to capture some emotion or image and make you feel it. Because you've got a lot of really great academic people, but what's going to make you remember person A versus person B? Another one from last year, actually, was somebody who grew up in Dubois and discussed what it was like to be in a Muslim country at the time of 9-11 and all of the outpouring of sympathy from Muslim people because of, you know, what terrible thing happened to America and they were Americans, etc. So those are a couple of examples of personal statements that I think capture you. I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't write some amazing, you know, novel that captures everyone's I on your personal statement that you're not going to get anywhere. It's just as a program director, you read a lot of these and a lot of them are, you know, I have all these qualities to be a great surgeon, blah, 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 you know, and and it's fine, but it sort of runs together with the last one that said that and the last one after that. But then all of a sudden you read something that's much more personal, you know, about what happened to them or what happened to like, for example, one of our residents, and I won't say who was, but his dad died suddenly when he was young. And by young, I think, 10 maybe and he wrote in his personal statement what that was like to go through that you know and that life-changing experience i can't even remember what he's i think his dad died of trauma but i can't remember 
It was some sort of sudden thing. You know, it wasn't expected. Is there anything that you recommend against in terms of personal statements or a length limit? I remember when I was applying, someone told me, do not write a word over one page. Make it fit on the front of one page. Well, surgeons like to be brief. So, and you're reading a lot of them. So try to make it one page. Don't make the font so small that you need, you know, to like increase it to read the thing. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. Make sure that it grammatically is correct and it's spell check. This is an attention to detail profession. And when you make mistakes in your personal statement, then that does get brought up. And I've definitely heard that at rank meetings before. Mm-hmm. I think you don't want to attack something else. You know, your personal statement shouldn't be airing of your grievances of life or whatever, you know, and I've definitely seen that too. You know, most recently we had one of our prelims. I had to counsel her that perhaps lecturing everybody about her terrible USMLE scores that happened because she was in a rural place in a country that didn't have good electricity and that, you know, make the obsession with scores is stupid and wrong. It's not going to get anywhere. So you might be able to phrase that in a different way that's not like ripping on the system because, you know, you are trying to get into the system. So, I mean, things like that. I mean, I don't think there's horrible errors in applications and personal statements other than the basic things like misspellings and such. Now, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second because I want to hear your thoughts. Do you ever get off your soapbox? <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm going to remain on my soapbox. So when I was a fourth year medical student, I was very interested in doing sub-I's away rotations from my home institution. I felt that they are a great opportunity for me to shine, which like you were saying, is hard to do when you're essentially one of tons of great applicants, but also get a better feel of what other places are like so that I know where to apply what I was looking for. And the most common feedback I received was, you're only going to hurt yourself by doing a sub-internship and away rotation. Because, I got exactly the same feedback. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, you're going to upset somebody. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to fail to tie a knot. And that's going to be the end of it. And I told, and I spoke to my chair of surgery at the time. And he was very supportive of me going away uh, rotations. That my feeling in regard to that statement was that if that's what it took for them to rule me out, I probably didn't want to go to that program to begin with. It should be about a bigger picture. But you being the program director of a large residency program that also takes a lot of sub-eyes every year, what are your thoughts on a sub-internship when it comes to helping or hurting your chances to matching into that program? With the preface that how many people in our particular residency class did sub-eyes here? Uh, Three out of ten, maybe? I think it's higher. I think it's four or five out of Hmm. ten. Yeah, well, I guess first you have to look at the, the comment, you're going to hurt yourself. To me, that's a little bit like, you know, you're you're on the bench on the team and somebody says, you know, well, if we put you in, you know, in the fourth quarter, you get a chance to play. And you're like, well, yeah, but what if I make a mistake? Then I'll look even worse. Maybe I should just sit on the bench. Hmm. But, you know, it's sort of like, well, if you don't have the confidence that you can perform then maybe this isn't even the right field because you have to do that all the time. You know, I mean, the surgeries go on, the schedule goes on, you know, you might be sick that day or whatever, not feeling, you know, whatever it is, but, you know, you end up, you know, having to perform. Um, And so I think you, you know, that's probably the wrong attitude. I mean, I, I get where people say that and there's always some personality thing, but that, to be honest, 
is a unbelievably rare event. I can't even remember the last time we had somebody who was very, very good and we were very interested in them looking at their application, who did a sub-I and somebody torpedoed them with some comment, you know. And we spend probably, mm, I would say probably at least half of the rank meeting on sub-I's and our own students because we know I'm the best. Now, you may spend half of your rank list determinations the same way because you know us, you know, but you're here. You see the things that, you know, I'm sure the entire time you're at a sub-I, even though every time I meet with the sub-I's, oh, this is the greatest place ever. It's amazing. You know, <laughs> Let me just get my first slide here to tell you how amazing your place is. You know, but we know that not every last little thing is amazing. And there are issues you see, you know, so, man, I mean, I think it's, it's whether or not you feel like you fit, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it does cost money, um, but it does give you a really good understanding of the program. It does give you an opportunity to get out of your comfort zone and go somewhere where you don't know everybody. And I think there's some value in that. How many would you recommend that people do? Do you have a number? Not really. I don't think there's a number per se. I would say there's, in, in my experience with looking at sub-eyes, there's like two sorts of groups. There are those who are very interested in, like, like they could get interviews, they don't need to do sub-eyes. But they're very interested in program X, Y, and Z. And I, and I think there's a lot more writing on sub-eyes now because we have a lot more couples matching. So people are wanting to check out places because they're specifically targeting it. I mean, if you look at our campus, for example, you know, if your couple is in Peds, well, he or she is either on this campus or in a different city because we don't have another Peds program in town. We don't have a, you know, we, we have medicine programs, but we don't have another Peds program. You know, we, we're not like Chicago or New York, you know, some of the other bigger cities where, you know, L.A., where you don't necessarily have to be in the exact same program, but you can still be in the same city. And we definitely have had people who have um, been, in, you know, had couples in family medicine or internal medicine in one of the community programs in town. We've definitely had that. But some of them are more limiting. And let's face it, you know, nobody starts dating based on career plans usually. I mean, it's probably not the first conversation like, well, what's your USMLE score? You know, and so, you know, and then those things can, I, you know, be a big issue. So I think recruitment has gotten a lot more complicated, both on our end and also on the applicant's end, because we have a lot more um, couples. And it's not just within medicine. It's like, uh, so, for example, Ark Wichter. When he was a resident, you know, his wife is a amazing water rights attorney. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big deal here. That's probably not a big deal in Oregon where it's only raining like nine months of the year. So, uh, you know, it's, there's certain parts of the country where, you know, certain jobs are better than others, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I've known people who have grown up here and their spouse has like a small business that's doing really well and relocating would be painful. So it's not just the couples within medicine, it's, you know, couples within other industries as well. Some jobs are a lot more portable than others, uh, et cetera. And then, of course, families come into play. 
you know, the nice thing about Denver is we have a great airport and we're not that far away from the center part of the country. So no matter where the grandparents are, it's not that horrible to fly out here because of our airport. But there are other places where that's not true. You know, you're in a smaller place and, you know, you're always taking a shuttle from a major airport to your college town and, you know, because much more of a hassle, et cetera. Now, without giving too much away, we wanted to ask you about questions and the actual interviews that applicants will have with faculty. What is a question that every person who comes to a residency interview should be prepared to answer? I think you need to have some level of a career plan. Nobody's going to hold you to it. Nobody's going to say when you're a chief resident, well, when we interviewed you, you said. But, you know, I think they want to see, have you gone through the thought process of, you know, what you might do and why you'd want to do it? It's almost like um, somebody you're, 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 you're talking to venture cap and you need to tell them if they did give you the money, what your company would be. So it's like, it's, it's hypothetical. Okay, we're going to give you the spot, but what are you going to do with this spot? And I think that's important. And it's okay to not know. It's okay to say, I'm not 100% certain, but that shouldn't be the end of the sentence. I'm not 100% certain, but I gravitate to X, Y, and Z because. And I think, you know, people want to see a thread of why you're doing what you're doing. It doesn't mean you aren't going to change a bunch of times. I mean, I already described one major change I made in my career, and there's plenty more. But, you know, it's it's like a thread. If you, uh, now that I look at people's CVs and write promotion letters, it's very interesting to see who looks like they've got some idea about what they want to focus on and who's done a little of this, a little of that, not much of anything. And so, you know, I think it's the same thing when you're interviewing and you have to put yourself in the position of the residency. Why would they want to hire you? Why would they want to bring you on board? What are you going to bring? I look at the residency like it's a, I guess a sports analogy would be a locker room. I want chemistry. I want people who are going to bring things that are interesting, you know, and, and so we have certain residents that have different backgrounds. Uh, I think that's always bring something into the, the, the training. I'm very interested in people with unusual, you know, sort of life experiences and how they've been able to meld that into uh, a career in surgery and why it would work for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we've got several people, for example, in our program that have had former careers in Wall Street. No, and I, I find that intriguing. I think their slant on things is always interesting. But, you know, I think another thing that is important if you're going to be a good surgeon is you have to be resilient. You know, you're going to not get a lot of stuff. And by that, I mean just clinically, for example. I can remember the very first colon anastomosis I did as a resident. I was an R2 the chief resident uh, had to do something else, and I got to do this colectomy with the chief of surgery. And I thought it went great, and I thought I was all that, and it was all exciting. And then, like, post-op day three, a little bit more tenderness, post-op day four, got a white count, tachycardic, and there we are, post-op day five at night. In the now there's no chief of surgery anymore. It's just me and the chief resident reoperating on my patient, who's had complete blowout of the anastomosis, needs to have, you know, an ostomy, and I am just getting ridden. 
by my chief resident about not only am I doing big cases when he's not around, but I'm not doing them well. And it wasn't said nearly that politely. And suddenly I'm like, hmm, this is not going to be easy, this career. Uh, and so there's a lot of negative feedback you get in this career. And so can you absorb that, internalize it, pick out the things you need to get better, not let the emotional parts of it destroy you, and move on and, and improve? And so to a certain extent, this career is a little bit like a boxer where you're just getting a series of body blows, but you have to stay upright and absorb them and still be there because it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, you know, no matter what you do, there's going to be something negative happen. And, and that's just clinically. There'll be all kinds of other things that happen. Because while you're in a residency, these huge life events happen. You know, we have a very family-oriented residency. So we have people that come in that are couples. People become couples. I've been to a lot of weddings. We have lots of children. But other things happen, too. Parents get older. They get sick. Things happen. Occasionally something happens in the family. Once in a while something happens actually with the resident. You know, so there's a lot of life events that you need support. You need to be resilient. You need to be able to ask for help if you need it. Things like that. So it's a very intimate relationship. Not just learning how to do the craft, but also the time of your life that you're going through all this. The most challenging part of the interview process, in my opinion, was always when you had to ask about the program because... You're at your fourth interview of the day. You already went to the dinner last night. You've been asking nothing but questions about the program now for the last 24 hours, but you feel obligated to ask something. So and everyone turns to you and says, what questions do yeah. you have for me at the end? So with that being said, what do you want to be asked about the program? What are some things that people should demonstrate interest in, if anything, about the program uh, as part of the interview process? Well, I think people who've done their homework always impress me. So they've thought about this. Um, so we're a big program, fourth largest surgery program in the country. And like any organization, once you get bigger and bigger, there's great positives to that and there's negatives to that. And I think uh, the insightful applicants have often asked me, what's it like to be in charge of such a big program? And what are the challenges? What are the difficulties with that? You, know, you just look at it like when I do the six-month meetings, it often, to actually get them all done, it's like three months. <laughs> just because, yeah, we have a culture here where if you're scrubbed in in a case and you're taking care of a patient, I don't expect you to scrub out to come meet with me. We'll reschedule it, you know, and so there's a lot of that that goes on. And so, you know, it takes a while to sort of get through all of it, you know, but that's just one example. I think other things are, you know, we have a remote site now that's a huge part of our educational program, but it's 70 miles away. And so I try to drive there at least once a month just because, you know, I, I think it's hard to lead via email or even the phone. you got to have a certain amount of face-to-face. -face. And it's better to have it on their site because that reinforces the fact that they're an important part of our program, which they are. So, you know, I think residents who've, applicants who've thought about you know, well, what are the logistical issues with this program? What makes this program different than some of the other programs? You know, why? Because rather than just generic questions of, you know, what are major challenges you see? Or, you know, what are the things? I mean, those are okay. And those, you know, 
I would opine similarly. But it doesn't show me that you have actually thought about our program. Rather, you've got some canned questions you're going to say to everybody. And, you know, it doesn't really resonate as much. So, for example, I try to read everyone's ERAS application before they come. We make slides that has data about each of the applicant and distribute them in different forms and fashions so that the other people that are going to be involved in interacting with the applicants know about. I spent a significant amount of time trying to at least learn two or three things about each applicant that I think would be worth talking about. And then 98% of the time, we'll just talk about it during the reception or something. Every now and then I'll like, rarely, fortunately, I'll say, so what was it like for you to do? And they'll look at me and like, huh? And then they were like, oh, wrong person. Because <laughs> it's hard to remember. We interview like 25 people. So, you know, 20 people. So it's, or I think it's 20 people. So it's hard to remember every last person because I try not to have notes. But still, I think that little personal touch makes a big amount of difference than somebody comes in and you like open their ERAS file and start saying, well, it says here, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, who they are. And I think, you know, having done that, then I have a framework in my mind and, and it's amazing how conversations will go in that environment. Uh, I mean, I remember Lindell, for example, I didn't anticipate that we were going to have a 15 minute conversation at Schulich's house about how much she hated Tebow and everything Florida Gator. I, I mean, I, I should know because she was, I should have known because she went to Georgia, but I mean, I didn't, because I'm not from the South, so I don't realize those, how much those rivalries really are. But, but you know, that like made it really easy to talk to her because suddenly I knew a lot more about what her personality was and everything was a lot more comfortable. And so I think things like that. So if you can tailor your conversation and your questions to the program specifically, and why you want to ask that question versus a generic thing. I think the program directors look at it differently. Every now and then I get somebody who's like, you know, gone way overboard and starts asking me questions about some paper I wrote because they look me up on PubMed. And, you know, that's impressive. But sometimes that's like, that's so impressive, it's a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> so do your homework, but don't be a stalker. Well, you know, yeah, that's right. That's right. I saw on Facebook your fish tank blew up. <laughs> <laughs> but if you do want to have a long conversation with Dr. Naylor, he does have a large fish tank. That's true. But I try to make it so that I'm well-rounded enough we can talk about a wide variety of things. Mm -hmm. So the applicant's gone home, and then there's always uh, the expectation, I would say, of having some kind of correspondence afterwards, expressing your gratitude for having you for having the program bringing you out for the for the interview. I remember I I did all emails when it came to correspondence. I don't think my handwriting is to the point where thank God for electronic medical records, but it would be more harmful to write them down versus email. But is there a form of correspondence that's better? And does it? What are some do's and don'ts when it comes to that follow up communication? Well, it's very interesting because you would think something that you know is seems as benign as, well, how do I say thank you for the experience, would not have as much baggage as this particular topic uh, does. Absolutely. But it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, I've been to the program director panel we have here over and over again, and like medicine, 
they tell you right up front, do not write us back. Do not really? do that. Oh, yeah. A lot like, of it's places. A, you didn't have that other place? It's so against the rules. Do not ever do it. Oh, you know? even email. It, or anything. Any, wow. I, don't want, I don't want any forms of communication. Personally, I'm a practical person. I, you know, I'm happy to have you communicate. We give you my card. It has my email address on it. As the residents will know, they feel free to text me all the time. So I'm very open about that, too. I'm happy to read uh, handwritten correspondence, but I must say, I can't change the font like I can on email. Mm-hmm. So occasionally, <laughs> if it's like really small letters, now that I've gotten older. Uh, but, you know, that's nice, too. You know, I, I, my sort of gut feeling is as a program director, there's a lot of critiques throughout the year. You know, and mostly it's, are you aware, and, you know, your residents or, you know, or this or that's not exactly what it should be, et cetera. Which is appropriate because you're always trying to tweak and make the program better. But, you know, there is this sort of nice during interview season. You get all these accolades. and You know, it's, we always make a big deal about it, which, you know, Claire puts the letters on the desk. and like, ah, <laughs> here we go. Four or five notes that are going to tell me how great I am. <laughs> yeah, I can hardly wait to read them. So, uh, so I think it's nice. I, I, I have definitely been involved in conversations. So for example, Fullerton, who came from Northwestern, and I have no idea what they currently do, and I'm not here to talk about how they do recruitment, but his comment to us was when he was there, they made a big deal that if somebody didn't communicate that they were less interested. Now, I, I think one of the problems that you have with surgery is that we all know that there's roughly a 10% attrition rate nationally. So every match week, you know, oh, all the spots are filled. It's like, yeah, they sort of are, but, you know, we just don't know who's going to quit yet. And so I think that programs that don't have prelims and things like that, that are smaller, are much more worried about that. And so they really, you know, may want the communication, the reassurance that, you know, you're very interested in them rather than, that program's going to be on the end of their rank list. And if they match there, they're going to be sad and start off bad. I mean, you know, I, my sort of feeling is I want everybody to be excited on match day to be coming to our program. We're always excited with the people we get. We hope they feel the same. And then everybody starts on the right foot, etc. And then another goal I always have is, you know, when it's time to get your certificate, you're just as excited that day. Well, I mean, you're probably going to be excited anyway because you're getting your certificate, but <laughs> about being at Colorado as you were the day you opened your envelope on match. But I don't, I, personally, I, I feel like some of these things, it's just common sense. I just listened to what my mom taught me, which was, you know, treat people appropriately, try to communicate with people, be honest. If there's some issue with that because there's some concern about it, you know, then I guess you have to ask yourself if they're going to be that overly worried about something like that, you know, is that environment going to make you comfortable? Yes, no. But I do feel like the poor applicants get a ton of mixed messages. I mean, I've seen it just within our own medical school because it's funny, but it's, it's adamant from one way to the other where there's a couple of residencies in our school that are no, 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 no communication. And then there's a lot that are like, yeah, we're happy to have you communicate. You know, I think the things that don't, resonate as well are I'm going to rank you number one you know the R value for that over the years isn't very high and you know we never 
ever communicate anything about rank to anyone. You know, the most you'll get is we're extremely interested, we think you fit in very well, sort of generic comments like that. And we generally do try to pick a cadre of people that we will communicate with. Usually some sort of text or phone, and some of them will communicate back, some of them don't. Usually it's some, do you have any more questions, which of course we know they don't, but then starts a conversation and, you know, then you can tell them how, you know, you thought they'd fit in. So I don't know. I mean, I I think there's a a hundred ways to make this more complicated than necessary. And I know there's a lot writing on it, but my feeling is that we get really good people year after year. I'm lucky to work with them. There's hardly anybody we ever have on our rank list that I wouldn't be happy to train. And, uh, yeah. That's, that's sort of how it is. I think the other thing is that's sort of amusing is every match week, a number of faculty come up to me and say, how'd we do? And I'm like, I don't know. Ask me in a couple of years. Right. <laughs> I mean, these people all look great, but they haven't got here yet. And, you know, there's a lot more to being a good resident than whatever happens during the interview trial. So we feel like we can work with them and they'll be great. And, you know, I think our experience has been that that's almost universally true. But, you know, I, I, I'm not someone who knows for sure until people get here. Well, I think speaking for myself and Jason, too, we hope that we have made you proud in some <laughs> yeah, sort of so. way. Yeah, so we're at that point, huh? Um, oh, absolutely. No, I'm very proud. I mean, I, you know, I think our residents are amazing people. I mean, I, I've, I get to work with some of the, the best and brightest of any discipline, quite frankly. And there's so many things that are resident-initiated ideas that now are part of our program, including this podcast. I don't recall coming up to you and saying, we should have a podcast. That's what's so great about the program, and that's some of the things that I look for, is like, what's what's this person going to bring to us? What are the things they're going to do that's going to put us at the next level as well in terms of ideas and thoughts? Because we recruit amazingly bright people, and what we try to do is be open enough to ideas that they really do feel like they can approach us for a wide variety of changes, maneuvers, things that are different. For example, our reception this year, we're going to change to a brewery downtown. We've normally had it at somebody's house. Now, some of that's logistics in that my house is under construction right now. But I think the other thing is, is it offers some different advantages. You get to see downtown. It's a little bit more laid back environment. It's much more likely a place that you might go to as a resident to enjoy yourself as a resident here. I mean, I'm sure you'd like to come to my house, but I'm not going to invite you that much. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we have a few things, but I mean, you know, realistically speaking, it's, it's an opportunity to get to see a part of Denver that if you come and interview, since we're on the east part of the city, you may or may not see that much. Mm -hmm. And we have a very vibrant downtown. Well, Dr. Naylor. Thank you so much for talking with us. We appreciate your direction uh, within our curriculum and our lives and for helping support this podcast. So thank you for all of your tips today. Yeah, I think we debunked a lot of myths when it came to the interview when it comes to the interview process. So this has been great. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it.